Good morning. My name is Joe Valenti. I'm one of our pastors. I serve with our students uh, and with our missions department. Um, as it relates to missions, just wanted to let you all know that the Ghana team, I think we have a picture of them, is in Ghana. So they left Friday. If you would remember to pray for them, uh, we are engaged with an unreached people group in uh, Ghana. They're actually not unreached anymore because of the efforts of CVC and the blessing of the Lord. Uh, they're considered under-evangelized, but this team is there. If you want to keep up with everything that we are doing, so we have our main CVC Facebook page. We also started a CVC missions group under that page. So it's a closed group because of security, but you can request to be a part of that group and uh, follow all that is happening in Ghana. My daughter was waving to me, hi. (laughs) Years ago, I uh, cover her ears while I tell this story. Uh, years ago, I flew out of town to go to a friend's wedding. And uh, a friend was an unbeliever, and most of the guys that were there were either guys that I didn't know or guys that I kind of ran around with in high school when I wasn't really following the Lord. And I was a little bit concerned, and my wife was a little bit concerned. Because, uh, uh, you know, the peer pressure, right? Like, you, you, when, you're, when you're around people who aren't really living for the Lord, there's that pressure to live like you used to live or to live like they live so that you fit in. And so I was really concerned, and I had folks here praying for me, and I went down there, and uh, everything was going swimmingly. We, you know, we had, we shot a good round of golf, and uh, then we had the rehearsal dinner, and the dinner was delicious. We're all sitting out on the deck, and then somebody brings up, uh, the idea to go to a club that was a, a, not a good place to go, right? I try to f- filter that for the children in the room. Uh, and I was like, oh, here's the moment, right? You know, like, okay, this is like do or die. Stand up or sit down, right? The, what, what are you going to do in this moment? Are you going to say, like, sorry, I'm the Christian guy in the group and I don't really do those things, right? And we all have those sorts of moments. I'm going to share with you sort of how things went in a little bit. But maybe that exact situation hasn't occurred in your life, but some sort of situation where we're faced with this pressure to conform, to worship the idols that the world sort of parades out in front of us. And while, as Christ followers, we know and believe that there are certain set of standards that we follow, namely those that are laid out in the Bible, culture seems to develop sort of this common core of right and wrong based on consensus, Right, Whatever everyone else believes uh, or what Hollywood purports or what the government puts out is what we all sort of should follow. And of course, if you don't merge into traffic, if you don't follow the cultural norms, if you don't agree with what everybody else has to say, then you're pegged as an outsider or a prude or you're closed-minded. This is my favorite one. If you don't agree, you're unloving. Like, okay. Oh, goodness, we're right, we're, we're beckoned to conform. All around us, we are called to conform. And my main point this morning, what I hope to convince you of, as we talk about this series of courageous faith, is that courageous faith responds in courageous obedience. That courageous faith responds in courageous obedience. When everyone else around you is worshiping something other than God, are you willing to be the only one standing? Are you willing to prove that you have courageous faith by exercising 
courageous obedience. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you would, pray with me, and we'll dig into our text. Father, would you help me this morning to present your word in all of its fullness with integrity and with passion? Would you help all of us, Lord, to receive it, to respond to it, to be obedient to what you would have us do? That we would come under the authority of your word, that we would not leave this place unchanged, that we would, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, be transformed, that our minds would be renewed. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Daniel 3 this morning. Daniel 3, so if you turn in your Bibles there, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what verse 1 says. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so here's sort of the setup of our story. You remember last week that Pastor Josh told us about this story uh, in Daniel 2 where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream, and Daniel, Daniel interprets that dream. The dream is about this giant image, same sort of thing, and it's made out of different types of material. And Daniel says that each of those types of material represent a kingdom, king, your kingdom and the kingdoms that will come after you. And then this giant rock flies out of somewhere and blasts this statue into a bazillion pieces and it grows into a mountain. And Daniel says, king, this is to represent that there will be, uh, there will be a kingdom that will come that will blow out of the water every other kingdom and that kingdom will grow and it will never be defeated and that is the kingdom of God. And that's what Pastor Josh shared with us last week. And so now in chapter three, sort of as a response, Nebuchadnezzar builds his own statue, right? In like typical egomaniacal fashion, <laughs> I will build my own statue, right? And so he does, he builds this giant statue. It's made of gold, very strong material, 90 feet high by nine feet wide. And sort of as to puff out his chest and say, well, we will see how things turn out. And if that's not enough, in order to sort of uh, remind everybody who's in charge, he says, everybody's going to worship this image. And he sets up this whole plan, right? This is what we're going to see in the text today. He sets up this plan that everybody will come, and there's this dedication to the statue, but every time they, are, they hear the band play, they're to get on their knees, put their face in the ground, and worship this golden image that he has erected. And that's sort of where we're at. Now, before I give you my first point, I want to read this text with you, and I want to ask you to pay close attention to some repetition in this text. I want to ask you, actually, if you highlight or you underline, to underline with me as we work through the text, and then I'll explain to you what its importance is. Here we go, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made, underline that or highlight it, an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up, underline that, on the plain of Dura. From now on, every time you see that phrase, set it up, I want you to underline it or highlight it, okay? I'll sort of draw attention to it. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image 
that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that certain time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, if you counted, it's like nine times right? This, uh, this is what's really cool about the Bible. When you read the Bible and you read it over and over again and you start to look at things, like the Bible, even though it is inspired by God, was still written by humans and humans have senses of humor, right? And so this, this author is writing and he's writing to encourage the Jews, to encourage them to follow Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's example. So he's reminding them in the text, it's sort of code, like it's a setup, it's a setup, it's a setup, it's a setup. This thing is fake right? Over and over and over again. I love it. And there are other, there's more repetition in here that I'm going to try and show you how funny it is. But it's like over and over and over again, this phrase of, it's a setup. He set it up. Literally, people had to make this thing that people are worshiping, and they had to set it up onto a platform. This has no power in and of itself, right? This is a fake God, and Nebuchadnezzar is exercising fake authority. And so here's my first point. If we are to exercise courageous faith, first we have to see the sham. See the sham. This is a, sh this is a setup job. Nebuchadnezzar is a puppet. He's a prideful, arrogant fool to think that erecting this monstrosity of a statue and forcing people to worship it will hold any sway over God's reality and God's plan. Right, we see very quickly Nebuchadnezzar ends up literally eating hay in a field like a horse because he has no power over God. That's in weeks to come. 
Because here's the thing, as we strive to exercise courageous faith and and courageous obedience, we first must get set in our hearts where the seat of authority lies. Does authority lie in the government? Does authority lie in the popular opinion? Does authority lie in Hollywood? Or does authority lie with God and his word? See, because only when you realize where authority lies do you know who to obey, right? When you know where authority lies, then you know who to obey. And what we're dealing with as we look, you know, if we look back to our Deuteronomy series, we're dealing with the first commandment issue. Actually, first and second commandment issue, right? Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make an image and bow down to it. And so we just got through that, right? And now this king is asking the Jewish people to break both commandments. You will bow down and you will worship this thing and everybody else is doing it and these guys say, no, we're not gonna do it because our authority comes from God, not from you, O king. Now, I'm not saying that that civil disobedience is always the right way, right? Josh Stone talked to us about that last week. But there are times when whether the government or your boss or a friend or your circle of influence or people in your neighborhood would call us to do something when it is right that you say, I will not. I will not bow down to that. This is it. Honestly, it comes back last time I was on the stage a few weeks ago, and you probably don't remember, but my key phrase was, do you love God above everything with everything? That's what this is about. Same message, different story. So they respond first by seeing through the sham. They know where authority lies. And then the second thing that they do is they reject the routine. They reject the routine. Here are some other, here's some other, you know, these, these lists that are just, as you read it out loud, it kind of gets annoying. He sent together the, the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces. Why doesn't he just say, after he uses that list, the next couple times just say, and all the government officials? He doesn't. This author, again, uses this repetition over and over and over as if to sort of, you know, he has, has this sort of satire-laden pen. And he's like, guess what? Everyone was there. To the point where you're like, okay, I get it. I don't even know what a satrap is. I get it. He was there, okay? <laughs> and then, and then there's this other list, right? There's this huge, this, this list of instruments, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music, right? Don't know what a trigon is. Nonetheless, there's this list over and over and over again. And here's what the author is trying to tell us. Everyone's there from the most important to the least important. They've hired a band. There's lights and music, and this is a really big deal. That's what, that's what he's meant. That's what, that's what the, the whole picture is supposed to set up, this giant thing, and the king's on his throne, and all the government officials, right? You ever have one of those meetings? The boss is like, you will be at this meeting. And you're like, okay. You know, what did he do? He set up a statue, and we're supposed to go? Okay, well, here, right? all the say traps, prefects, all the people are there, and then the herald, right? Oh, people, here is what, right? And when you hear the music, you will bow down. And if you can picture it in your mind, Babylon's vast kingdom. And what does it say in, in, in seven? That everybody from every language and nation, everyone bows down. Can you imagine? Like, I don't know how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were at this dedication 
everyone does what the king says to do, except these three Jewish guys that are like, we're sort of the odd guys out, gents, right? They reject this routine. And see, you and I, friends, we are in this world where we're constantly berated with this mandate to agree with everyone, to go along with public opinion. We're beckoned to bow down before these gods that the world has created, the gods of materialism, of safety, of popularity, of tolerance, of lust, of self-gratification, and on and on and on. They both come from the popular sector and they come from the government, our highest systems of government continue to mandate that abortion remain legal, to assume that marriage is whatever you want it to be, to sort of call people to turn, to, to, to turn a blind eye to people that are hurting. And these sorts of responses, these sorts of idols, these sorts of mandates are man-made. They are not what God has called us to do And we are to see through the sham of false authority and we are to reject the routine. And it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be the only one standing up there when everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do. Is it not? Like peer pressure is a real thing. We experience it as adults all the time. Everywhere that we go, right, the things that we drive, the cup that's in our hand, the way that our hair is, the labels that are on our clothes, where our kids go to school, what our house looks like, on and on and on and on, peer pressure is real. So imagine what these men must have felt like. We look around in our neighborhoods and we see everyone else worshiping at the altar of materialism, and so we sort of have to keep up with the Joneses. We look around sort of in our friend group and in the culture and on social media, and we see like, well, everyone else is kind of worshiping at the altar of sexual freedom. I can do whatever I want with no consequences. And so we just, we'll assume, well, maybe that's what I should be doing too. And we look around and we see this world that is so dead set on worshiping themselves instead of God, and it is really, really hard to stand up when everybody else is bowing down. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give us two responses to this culture that we need to ask the Lord to drive deep into our hearts so we would reject the routine and that we would see the sham. Here are just a few illustrations. I, uh, I'm really proud of my little brother. Um, my little brother was a car salesman, and he's been telling me for a while he's thinking about getting out of it. And he had lots of reasons, but one of the reasons was this. It challenged his ethics. So, you know, they would do these sales. You ever get one of those scratch-off things, like from a car guy? It's like, hey, you won something. And like, you, you know, you take it in, like, oh, no, I won nothing. You just wanted me to come in here so I could buy a car. They do these sales, and there's a lot of, like, sort of backroom stuff. And my brother would tell me, he's like, I know that what I'm charging this guy in front of me is w- way out of his price range. It's made way more than this car is worth. But what my boss tells me, if, if that sucker's dumb enough to buy it, well, then I have to sell it. And it bothered his ethics. I'm proud of him because he actually, he um, is moving on. 
He chose a different job where he doesn't have to hopefully deal with that stuff. But I wonder, like when you're faced, businessman, when you're faced with ethical dilemmas in your workplace, businesswoman, when you're faced with ethical dilemmas in your workplace, do you sort of just say, well, that's kind of what the job requires? Or are you willing to stand up when everybody else is bowing down to the almighty dollar, the almighty sale? This happens with our coaches. I mentioned this last time and I almost threw a chair. Um, but this happens, right, with our coaches like, and with our activities. Like everybody else is, um, is, is bowing down to what the coach says. And so if you, if you can't come on Sunday to do the things that we need you to do, well, then you don't play, right? That's sort, of the, that's sort of the consequence. And so as parents, we go, well, everybody else is sort of doing that thing. And I don't want my son or daughter to, you know, be sad. And so we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll go to church two times a month and we'll try, you know, try and figure it out. We've seen this become the case with sexual promiscuity, on and on and on. You, like, I, my hope is that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, whatever the illustration is that you need, the, the thing in your life where you are beckoned or called to bow down to something that is not God. Whether it be in your school, whether it be in your friend group, whether it be at the gym that you, that you go to, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, the power moms of Brexville, Broadview Heights High School, middle school, whatever it happens to be, we know that there are these pulls on us. And we need to realize that this is all a setup, friends. It's a sham. These things aren't God. They need not have any power over us. We don't need to bow down to the prevailing opinions or the cultural norms. We don't need to worship at the altars where the world worships. There's a different way to live. There's a different way to live, a way of obedience. And it might, all, it might not always be easy, however. See, we like, like, okay, there's a different way to live, a way to live obedient to God and God's blessing, I hope it's easy. Surprise, it's not. Because here's, here's what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? There are consequences for them standing up. There are consequences, right? They are going to be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. That's the consequence, and it's a real consequence. And the truth is the same of us. When I mean, you know it. When you stand up for what is right, people don't like it. They would like you to conform. They'd like you to believe what they believe. They would like you to do what they do. And so we lose friends. We get called names. Somebody does a Facebook rant on you. And whether or not you like Facebook or not, like that still can hurt. I had a friend I was talking to the other day that just got blasted on Facebook. It's hurtful. We may, it, it may go to another level. If you decide to Obey God's call to the nations, to missions. You may be physically hurt. Or you may consider the men and women who have gone before us that have laid down their lives, have had their heads cut off and have been burned at the stake because they would not bow down to the gods that the government or the prevailing culture asked them to bow down to. I want you to do some research this week. Look up the Nashville Statement. If you're not familiar with the, with the Nashville Statement, a group of conservative evangelical pastors and scholars got together and they crafted a statement that, uh, that portrays the church's view, biblical evangelical view on gender and sexuality. It is both loving, but it is also very clear. And these men 
the media has just been destroying them for standing up for a biblical view of these things. And so what do we do when we're faced with the pain, faced with the consequences, faced with the difficulty, faced with the moment where we're standing up and everybody else is bowing down and now the king is coming to throw you into the fiery furnace. Like it may be, you know, if you work that implication out, it may be your boss. Now your boss is gonna fire you. It may be the mom who's gonna stiff arm you. It may be the coach and you're not in the, on the team anymore. It may be you're not quite part of the office scuttlebutt like you used to be. What, are the, what happens when the consequences come? How do we deal with them? So we've seen, we need to see through the sham and we need to reject the routine, but now what? Verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, before we read verse 16, I want you guys to know, this is the point of the text, right? I'm gonna ruin the end for you, okay? God saves them, okay? There you go, over. That's icing on the cake. It's not the point. See, bad theology, people, pastors who, who want to read into the text what they want you to hear will, will, will use this text to try and convince you that God will always save you, that you'll never have any pain, that it'll always be good and fluffy and unicorns and rainbows. That is not what this text is about. This is what this text is about. Hone in if you've fallen asleep or you're totally gone. Verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And here it is, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Oh man, I wish I could have been in the cheap seats for that one. Like, yeah! Right? Forget the Indians game, like I want to come out of my seat if I was at this dedication. Because these guys, here's what they do. I've got two points in this section, and they profess God's power, and they affirm God's freedom. They profess God's power, and they affirm God's freedom. And this is really, really important that to us that these two things go together. They cannot be separate. We cannot say, God, I believe in your power as long as you do what I want you to do. That cannot be the way that our faith functions. That's faith in circumstances, not faith in God, right? That, that robs God of the freedom that he has. And here's the problem. Here's why we ought not and cannot do that because you and I suffer from this disease. It's called nearsightedness. 
We cannot see the big picture as God sees it. We have no idea how our pain or suffering or obedience will work out in the grand scheme of things, will we'll, we'll cause ripple effects to go through the, the, the years of history, will affect the kingdom of God in the long term. And so we are to leave the results to him. And I, oh man, I like, but if he doesn't save us, guess what? We're still not bowing down to your gods. Yeah. Man, I love that. These guys are my kind of guys. Faith is not faith in what we believe ought to happen. Faith is not about our circumstances, but about the object. And I think about, friends, our brothers and sisters that are all over the world right now. I'm not talking about historically, I'm talking about now. That are not living in America, that are living in places where quite literally doing this right now, in 2017, standing up like this will get you murdered. We don't have that freedom, honestly, like the biggest things that we deal with are pretty petty in the grand scheme of things. I would call you to pray for the persecuted church. I've got a friend coming in a few weeks from Pakistan, and he was just in Pakistan, and he was explaining to me some of the atrocities that are happening to the pastors there who are willing to stand up against Islam and ISIS and on and on. We are to stand up to profess God's power, but to affirm God's freedom. God, I believe that you can do this, but even if you don't, I'm still okay with it. Because here's, here's what unbelievers would say. This is, this is the danger, friends, with thinking that everything's gonna be good all the time, that we'll always be spared the pain all the time that unbelievers will say to you when you're going through pain, when you're going through suffering, when you're dealing with difficult things, where's your God? And if you have a view, if you have a, a theology that says, well, God has to protect me all the time, God has to make sure that my life is easy all the time, you're not gonna know how to answer that person. There's a story that I heard, I love this story. In the, in the, in the 360s, uh, the Roman Empire was ruled by Emperor Julian and there was a significant persecution going on uh, within Christianity. And there's a story that, I'm not sure where the source is, but this, the, there's a story that says that one of, the, uh, one, of, one, one of the government officials or the philosophers of the day went to this Christian who was being persecuted and he goes, hey, where's the carpenter's son now? And the man answered him, sir, the carpenter's son is currently employed in building a coffin for the emperor. <laughs> and that is the view that we are to have. We are to see clearly where authority comes from. We are to reject the routine. And then when the difficult times come, we profess God's power. I believe he can save us. And he might. 
But even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to worship. I affirm God's freedom. Let's see how things turn out for our friends. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into a burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Do you see? Here's just another, the cloaks, the tunics, the hats. There are, there's this, this other list. There's like, hey, things that burn, okay? It's great. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to, said to the king, true, O king. I love that. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. My fifth point is that courageous faith is confident in Christ. It's confident in Christ. Now, this text doesn't explicitly say that it was Jesus in the fire, I'm not going to argue about it. If you disagree with me, we can talk later. Um, I'm okay with saying um, that it was Jesus in the fire. We have to consider that this is from the viewpoint of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, this looks like one, like the son of the gods. I'm okay with saying that it was Jesus. And the fourth point is that as Christians, particularly New Testament Christians, we can have confidence in Christ. See, here's what happened, folks. This story in my life happened and I was asked to go to this club that I did not want to go to and I was faced with a moment, if, are you gonna bow down to the, common, uh, you know, to the common way of doing things or are you gonna stand up? And I actually pulled my, side of my, my friend aside and I said, hey man, like, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not gonna do this. Like, I don't mean to rain on your parade, I don't mean to ruin the party, I know everybody else wants to do this, I'm not gonna do it. So like, I can go back to the hotel, be glad to drive. Like if you guys you know, need a designated driver, I'm not gonna do it. And he's like, oh, man, I didn't think about that. Yeah, okay. Well, you could be the designated driver. Okay. And then something happened. We were driving, and I was driving this big SUV, kind of everybody in it, and there was another car behind us. And I didn't ask anything more. And he just kind of spoke up, and he said, hey, guys, like, my dad's here. Joe's a pastor. Like, why don't we just go to this bar? We'll have some drinks and have some wings and call it a night. And astonishingly, everybody goes, that's cool, man, whatever you want. 
And so I, I believe in that moment that the Holy Spirit did something miraculous that caused him to have that response and that caused the other guys to have the response. And in that moment, when I stood up and I was obedient, the Lord rescued me from the consequences. But he doesn't always do that. And I know that some of you are in this room and you're dealing with perhaps the consequences of your obedience to the Lord. And the rest of us, I want you to know that if you are obedient to the Lord, if you choose to draw a line in the sand, if you choose to stand when everybody else is bowing down, you will come up against persecution. You will come up against the public opinion. You will be laughed at and mocked and made fun of, and you will be ostracized and you will be out of the group. You may lose a job, you may lose a friend, you may be the weirdo in the cul-de-sac in the neighborhood, but you will have been obedient. I want you to notice in this text that the men are not blocked from going into the fire. Jesus does not stand in front of the furnace and go, no! What does he do? Jesus enters into the furnace with them. And it will be the same for you and I. Jesus will enter into the furnace with us. And he may or may not rescue us from the different circumstances of this life, but ultimately, that's not his main objective. Jesus' main objective is to rescue us for eternity. And Jesus entered into the fire, entered into the flame, entered into the consequences that we deserve. See, the Bible tells us that the wages, the consequences of our sin is death. Burning, fiery furnace, literally hell forever. And that Jesus, because of his great love for us, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and chose to walk straight into the fire, straight into the furnace. He gave his life on a cross that you and I might be spared the consequences for eternity and might have both a new life, a different life here and the hope of eternity that not a hair on our head would be singed, not a whiff of the smoke would be on our clothing. I want to, I'm a little bit over, but I'm just going to take one more minute because I want to, I want to challenge you, CVC. I was talking to Chad this week and I was looking back through some of my old sermons and I see this through line, this through line that I mentioned at the beginning of the service, and it comes to this, loving obedience. Seems like every sermon that I've preached here in the main service over the last two years comes down to obedience. And I don't take that lightly. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge our church. If you're Somebody who calls CVC home specifically, I want to challenge you. You know, last time I preached, I sort of said like, ah, don't congratulate me, don't shake my hand, just obey. And I say that because every time we walk into this room on a Sunday, we ought to be coming expecting to be transformed and willing to be obedient. And so I would ask you, I would ask you this week, as you drive home in the car with your spouse or with your kids or as you lay in bed tonight, 
that you would ask yourself, like as I have sat under the teaching of the Bible at CVC over the last many years, Chad and Josh and Joe and Rick, have I, have I really determined in my heart, asked the Holy Spirit to help me to be obedient? Or do I just listen to what they say and kind of go, that was, that was a good sermon? Are we being a church that is being obedient to what God is calling us to do? With our finances, with our actions, with our free time, and our families, and on and on and on. Let us be a people, CVC, who when everybody else is face down in the dirt, that we would be willing to stand willing to stand with confidence in our God. We'd be willing to say, even if he doesn't save me this moment, he has already saved me for eternity. And that is enough for me. Let's pray. Lord, would your Holy Spirit sweep through Cuyahoga Valley Church. Convict me of sin, convict us of sin. Open our eyes to the way, the ways that we have obeyed other gods, obeyed the public opinion, obeyed the blogosphere, obeyed the government where we should have been obeying you and your word. Work in us humility and work in us a deeper faith, a courageous faith that would work itself out in courageous obedience. Would you do in us specially and uniquely what we cannot produce on our own? Help us yield to your Holy Spirit that in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the persecution, in the middle of the difficulty, we would say, I still will not worship these other gods. I will worship Yahweh, God, and him alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.